Thank you all for coming uh, this morning. My name is Jeremy, and uh, this is weird for me this morning because we were dating before, and now we're married. And I feel like you're going to learn things about me. I'm going to leave the toilet seat up, and I'm not going to put my laundry away, and it's going to be weird. Uh, so just want to get that out there right away. I know. I know. I'll fix it. I'll figure it out. We'll make it through this together. All right. We're going to study this morning in Philippians. So grab your Bibles. Turn to Philippians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there'll be one on the screen. Now we can look up here at Philippians chapter 1. I want to teach this morning on um, God's desire for us of progress over perfection, but nothing less. God desires progress over perfection, but nothing, nothing less from us at all. How many perfectionists do we have? Any perfectionists here in the house this morning? You can raise your hands better than that. You're perfect. Come on, better. There we go. Yeah. We're not proud of it now. We used to be, but now we're not so much anymore. But I'm, I think I'm a perfectionist. I'm recovering. I was, I was a really bad one, and then I had kids. And I was like, this won't work for us together if I'm a perfectionist and you live in my house. We can't have this together, so... Something has to give. I can't legally send them out. And so I had to change who I am. Uh, but I am a perfectionist. I think I just, I have this weird desire in me to see everything be perfect and right. And again, I'm, I'm learning. I'm recovering. It, it serves itself or proves itself to me, especially when I try to learn something new. If I'm going to do something new, I need to be guaranteed I'm going to be good at it right away. So I grew up in Florida. I grew up on the west coast of Florida. And so we didn't grow up with snow at all. Uh, it might have snowed, I don't remember, but maybe it snowed once or twice, but it never, for, I don't remember going snow skiing, youth group trips, we never went snow skiing, it was just way too far, uh, Florida kids and snow, way too many injuries, so we never did. So I, I never, in college, um, I went to college in northeast Georgia, and my roommate wanted to go snow skiing one day, and I was like, yeah, this sounds amazing, because I'm, I'm 21, what could go wrong? This sounds great. So we went snow skiing up in Vermont. And uh, it's the first time I'd ever been snow skiing, and my buddy says, hey, um, let's go up to this mountain. And I'm like, cool, that's where you ski, right? He's like, yeah. So we go up. I'm like, what are these black diamonds for? What does this mean? He's like, oh, it's fine. I do this all the time. I'm like, yeah, I don't do this ever a time. No, I've never done this. And then he said, hey, you should snowboard because it's easier because you don't have to control one thing instead of two. And I said, oh, it's like wakeboarding? He's like, yeah, it's just like wakeboarding. Except there's no boat and no water. And you could die by falling off of the mountain. <laughs> anyway, so I'm terrible at that. So I decided I would never go snow skiing again. Never again would I do that. Um, I got married to a girl who loves to go snow skiing. And I got asked to speak at a youth event, a youth retreat in Maryland. And it was a ski retreat. And we had been married for a couple of years. And it was still like, I'm still proving how manly I am to you. Because you know I like Justin Timberlake. And so now I'd be like, yeah, I do. But also... I also do woodworking, so maybe we can, maybe that. But yeah, let's go skiing. This sounds amazing. And so we had just had our oldest son, Colton. He was maybe a year, not quite a year old yet. And I'm asked to speak at this ski retreat. And so we go up, and Meredith and I, the first time we go skiing together, and we're riding the lift up, and it's just great. And I'm just being a goober. And so I take one of her gloves, and I'm just joking, like, oh, I'm going to throw it. And then it slips out of my hand and falls down. She's like, you have to go get it. And I was like, I, I can't. I literally can't go get it. Anyway, so a couple hours into it, um, we have conversations about marriage and what this looks like for us, and should we continue, because I'm skiing, and she, <laughs> I'm falling, she's skiing, and then uh, I just decide, because I'm, I'm just a sacrificial husband, I just said, hey, listen, baby, why don't, why don't you ski? I'll just go back to the room and take care of our son. How about that? Like, I will sacrifice that for you. 
but to this day, I haven't missed nothing because I'm not good at it right away, so I don't want to continue doing it. That's kind of my nature. It's kind of who I am. But I've learned to manipulate that, and so now what I figured out as a perfectionist who doesn't ever want to fail, I can't fail if I don't try to do it. So I don't even try to do new things anymore. That way I'm not a failure. <laughs> that way I'm successful in my life. Uh, but that's, that's, that's me. But the problem for me is I think it's, it's made its way into my faith. And it's just in my nature. It's kind of who I am. It's who I've always been. I'm a firstborn. I'm the oldest of six. And I just, that's who I am. And it's made its way into my faith for me. So I want to teach this morning from Philippians chapter 1. I want to teach on, it's, it's Paul's heart for the church of Philippi. And it's, it's my heart for us. It's my heart for my family. It's my heart for myself. But I just want to give you a glimpse as to into who I am and, and where I hope we can be and what we can become together. I'm on a Quentin Tarantino this passage. So if you've ever seen a Quentin Tarantino movie, you can raise your hand. Don't raise your hands. You're Christians. You've never seen a Quentin Tarantino movie. Uh, so Tarantino will start like in the middle of a scene and then he'll backtrack and then come all the way. So we're going to Tarantino this passage this morning. So we're going to be in Philippians 1. We're going to go to Acts 16 and then come back to Philippians chapter 1. All right, so let's go. Philippians chapter 1. We're going to go through 11 eventually. Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. And it'll be on the screen. I thank my God every time I remember you. This is Paul. Paul wrote about two-thirds of the New Testament, and many of them are letters to churches. This is to the church in Philippi. He writes this letter to them, and he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. Verse 4, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So Paul writes this letter to the church in Philippi and says, I am thankful for you. In fact, when I pray, I pray with joy because of all of you. Notice he doesn't say each of you, because there are some he probably doesn't feel joy for. He just says, generally, all of you, I feel joy for you. But in verse 5, he says, you've been partners with me in the good news and the gospel from the first day until now. So the first day, this is written uh, around 61, 62 A.D. Back in 51 or so A.D., Paul went on a journey with a man named Silas and they found themselves in a place called Philippi. This will be in Acts chapter 16. So hold your place there in Philippians. Go to Acts 16. We'll come back to Philippians here in a little bit. Acts chapter 16, we see the beginning of the church of Philippi. And this is important for us to understand. I'm going to give some backstory, but it's going to be the groundwork on which we build this message this morning. And then I'm going to, I want to teach on some sanctification and what God's called us to. But I want to come around to some hope and the grace of Jesus in the midst of it at the end. So Paul writes this letter. He's in prison when he writes this letter because it's where Paul hangs out for the majority of his life is in prison. But it's for good reasons, not bad reasons. And here in Acts chapter 16, he's making this journey. Acts chapter 16, we're going to start in verse 13. Acts 16, verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. Paul's MO when he goes into a city is he wants to find the synagogue. Paul is an educated Jewish man. And if he's going to tell people about Jesus, he feels like he can really reach the Jew. But in doing so, he's going to spread it out to reach those who aren't Jews as well. And he finds himself in Philippi. And Philippi is the first place, this will be the first city that's reached with the gospel in Asia. Long story with how he got there, just the sovereignty of God. But he gets there and he finds himself, it's the Sabbath. But because it's not a Jewish city, there probably aren't synagogues. But what they do... Jews in a city where there's no synagogue would find themselves gathered together for a prayer meeting or study, and they would usually gather by a river because back in the Old Testament they read 
that um, you find life by a river or a stream of flowing water is what gives you life, like a tree planted by, by a stream of flowing water. So they go down by the river. Um, verse 13. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. So essentially there's a women's Bible study happening on the river in Philippi. Anybody been to a women's Bible study before? Women, yep. Uh, so women's Bible studies are by nature and by design for women. Men don't necessarily go to them. And so Paul finds himself walking to like a Beth Moore study on the river. And he walks up and there's women gathered there and they're, they're studying, they're, they're praying and studying together here in Acts 16. Verse 14, one of those listening was a woman named Lydia. Say Lydia. Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. So now we meet Lydia. If you're taking notes, write Lydia's name down. We're going to meet three people who are the beginning of, of the church in Philippi. And we meet Lydia first. Lydia, we find out, is a worshiper of God. Some of your translations would say she is a God-fearer or one who fears the Lord. So she is from Thyatira, and Thyatira is in Asia. She is an Asian fashionista. This is who she is. She has, she is a fashion mogul. She is a dealer in purple cloth. Purple cloth would be the most expensive of the cloths that you would find, which is why royalty wore purple robes. And she deals in purple cloth. This is Lydia. She's a God-fear. She's not by, by birth a Jew, but she has somehow found herself gravitating towards the Jewish faith. She believes in God. She believes in the Jewish God. And so she, even here, in Philippi has found her way into a Bible study. And the verse says that the Lord opened her heart to hear the message. Verse 15, when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. So Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth, has a house in Thyatira and a house in Philippi because she's loaded. And so she's got this vacation home on the river in Philippi. Philippi and Thyatira are two big metropolitan towns at the time. And so she, I mean, she's rolling in it. She's doing okay for herself. She has two homes. She finds Jesus when Paul simply opens the scriptures to her. And then she says, you got to come back to my house. And Paul's like, I mean, I'm a tent maker. I really like tents, but your house sounds amazing. Let's go to your house on the river and we'll see if you have a chef who can cook me something. And so they go there together to her house. Uh, and that's where they go in verse 15. She and her members, were, her household were baptized. She invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Everybody say Lydia. All right, so we've got Lydia. And Lydia um, has a foundation of faith, right? She has a foundation of understanding. And it just took that little nudge of Paul to say, hey, the things that you know are actually true about Jesus. Let me connect the pieces for you. How many of you this morning, your story of salvation is a lot like Lydia's. You, you kind of knew it, uh, and it, it just made sense. Like, it wasn't some miraculous thing. You weren't in the pits of depression or despair. Maybe you came to faith early. Maybe you've always grown up in church. How many of you would say your story of salvation is like Lydia's? Anybody? Raise your hand. Mine is that way. I was saved. I was just probably over four years old, so I didn't have a whole life of crime and drug abuse up until then. Um, and God just, through a plumber who taught my Sunday school class, laid the gospel out. My parents and I, we prayed, and I just, I gave my life to Jesus. It's all I've ever known. Like that's, that's my story. I was 18 and asked to give my testimony at church as a senior, and I was like, I don't think it's going to take that long. But okay. Um, so I did. Now, since then, I've done my best to make it more exciting, but 
Um, but yes, that, that's my story. I, I can relate to Lydia. Like God, I think God speaks to me just through my, through my mind. It's, he just, just makes sense. Makes sense to me. So we've got Lydia. Let's keep reading in Acts chapter 16 into verse 16. And once we were going to the place of prayer, we were met there by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. We've got Lydia, wealthy CEO, fashionista, two homes. And then we meet a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. So you see the contrast. I mean, we're one verse away. You see the contrast. Lydia has her life together. She's got it figured out. She is, she's a good woman. She's pursuing the right things and just needs this little bit of understanding to know Jesus. And then we meet this slave girl whose life is just crazy. She's not in control of anything. She is a slave. She is possessed by a demon. Like she is not in a good place. This is, this is who we meet next, this slave girl. Verse 17, this girl followed Paul and the servants of the Most High God, uh, who followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Which sounds like this would be amazing to have you, her following. She's like Flava Flav, like just telling everybody. She's like their hype, no Flava Flav fans. <laughs> With the big clock, he's the hype man, different context. He, uh, so she's just ye- yelling for everybody, this is who they are. The problem is, this is a, she's being sarcastic and almost demeaning in the way that she's saying this about Paul and those who are traveling with him. Verse 18, she kept this up for many days. And finally, Paul became so troubled, some of your translations say, he became greatly annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the Spirit left her. We got Lydia put together, just, I mean, she, CEO, wealthy, knows God, simple transformation to Jesus. And now we've got this slave girl who has control over nothing in her life. She's in the pits of despair, struggles with all kinds of addictions. This is who she is. And then Paul radically shares the God, commands the demon to come out, and she finds Jesus. Extra biblical sources and Jewish faith tell us that she then began to also follow Paul and began to be part of this early church in Philippi. So we've got Lydia's in the room who was just a simple transition and we just, we've always believed is what we've known. Like it just took our, our knowledge to get us there. I think some of us in the room this morning, maybe if you are like the slave girl, your testimony is more like God rescued me from something incredible. Like it was a miraculous moment. I was in this really dark place and then something happened. I can't even explain it. And I started following Jesus. I was at a youth camp and the speaker gave a message and then I just, I couldn't, I was compelled within me to follow Jesus and I haven't been the same since. How many of you are like that? Like the slave girl where it's just a miraculous thing from, from drugs or alcohol or some kind of addiction. So we've got Lydia and then we've got the slave girl. We're gonna meet one more person here. In Acts chapter 16, verse 25, uh, Paul and Silas, so after this happens, the slave girl's owner's like, this is terrible, you're taking our money from us, we've got to tell someone. And then Paul and Silas get arrested and thrown in prison because it's where Paul would rather be than in Lydia's house. And so now he's in prison because he's there all the time. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. The other prisoners were listening to him and suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. All at once, the prison doors flew open, everybody's chains came loose, and the jailer woke up. When he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword, was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. So we've got Lydia, say Lydia. We've got slave girl, say slave girl. 
And now we've got jailer. Say the jailer. The jailer, so in this time, most jailers were ex-military men, ex-GIs. And so he's, uh, he has a high sense of obligation. And he's going to serve no matter what the cost. But he's also probably a rough, violent man. Earlier in the passage, we read that the leaders told the jailer, hey, put these men in the inner cell, but don't mess with them. Like, just treat them kindly. Treat them carefully. But instead, he, he tortures them, essentially. God sends an earthquake. Everything shakes loose. And this man, because he's so bound by obligation and by the moral code, is about to kill himself because of what has happened. The law in that point, in that point in time, is that if a jailer, if anybody got escaped from prison under their watch, they were punished by death. So this guy's like, listen, I've done it. I might as well just end it myself. And then we find verse 28. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. I love Paul, but this is stupid. Run away. You're, it's free, man. What, what's happening? So Paul stays, verse 31. They replied, I'm sorry, verse 29. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What happened? Well, this man who was bound by obligation saw these two men whose moral code was actually greater than his was. A man who has prided himself on being a good man, an honorable man, now finds these two men who could have left the prison, who could have run out, but they don't, and they come back and save his life, and he's like, I got to know more. You're living your life differently. Like, I thought I was good, but this is different than that. And so he asked them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, just believe in the Lord Jesus. You'll be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. And at the hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. And the jailer brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. So we've got Lydia, we've got this slave girl, and now we've got this jailer. How many of you, your testimony, your story of finding Jesus is that you just came in contact with people who were living a life that you could not reconcile? You, were, you, you had a roommate, you had a friend, you had a, a family member, you had a coworker, and you were like, I gotta know more because the way you're living doesn't seem to register with me. How many of you would say that, that you, just, you came in contact with someone whose moral code was different, who was living differently than you? So this is the church of Philippi. This is how it began and how it would continue to grow. Paul writes a letter to the church at Philippi. It's his only letter that is not a letter um, condemning or criticizing the church or correcting some problem they have. It's simply a letter of encouragement and keep doing what you're doing. And these three people, if we go back to Philippians chapter 1, are the people that Paul has in mind when he says in Philippians 1-3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. All my remembrance of you, Lydia, and you, slave girl, and you, jailer. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day, from then, from by the river and in that jail cell, I remember that day, and you've been partners with me in the gospel. And then verse 6, being confident of this, that he, that's God, that God who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul would start churches that then 
He was what's called an apostle and an evangelist. He would leave and then go start other churches. But Paul says, I'm confident that what God began in you on the riverside and in that jail cell, I believe what God started in you will continue. I'm confident in that. So if you write your Bible or whatever, maybe circle that word in. Began a good work in you. So we're going to get a little nerdy right now theologically, but I've got to lay some foundation. So there's two there's two words I want to talk about. One is justification and one is sanctification. We can get all kinds of layers underneath that, but justification is being declared righteous. That's justification. If Paul was talking about justification, he would say, he who began a good work for you. We are justified by the finished work of Jesus on the cross. It was a one-time act that set us free. It justified, it made us righteous, it made us pure in the eyes of God. But Paul says that he who began a good work in you, and this is the word sanctification. Sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit that makes us more like Jesus, or in fact makes us more righteous. So Meredith and I have been married um, for going on 12 years, and so for us, on the day we got married, on May 19th, we were married. We were declared married. Over the course of the next 12 years, and hopefully many, many more after that, I am being, I'm becoming more and more married with her. Does that make sense? We were declared married, but through the process of marriage, I'm becoming more and more married to her. It's the same way with Jesus. We've been justified by his finished work on the cross, but that's not the end because we're also being made more and more righteous through sanctification. And so Paul is saying here to the church in Philippi, I am confident that God who began making you more righteous who began a work in you on the riverside and in the prison cell, he will continue to sanctify you, to make you more like Jesus. And then he says, until the day of Christ Jesus. So until the day we stand before him, which means everyone in this room this morning has yet to stand before Christ Jesus, so we are all being sanctified every day. We aren't there yet. Paul would say later in Philippians, I have not apprehended that goal, but I work more and more. So go to verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. He says, it's right for me to be confident because you share in grace. Not because you're perfect, not because you have it figured out, but because you and I, we all share in the same grace of God together. Verse 8. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. All right, now let's get to verses 9 through 11, and we're going to teach here. Verse 9, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So Paul says, I know that God is sanctifying you. I know he's doing a work in you. Ten years ago it started. I know it's continuing. I'm confident of that. So here is my prayer for you. Here is my hope for you. This is Paul's pastoral prayer, his pastoral hope for the church at Philippi. In Colossians, which Paul wrote as a letter to the church at Colossae, Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29, Paul says that Jesus is the one we proclaim, and then he says this, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Paul's desire for all the churches he began, Paul's desire for all the Christians in those churches 
is that they would become mature, fully mature in Christ. And in verse 29, Colossians 1, he says, To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. So I just want to take a sidebar and say this. This is the role of a pastor. The role of a pastor is to desire to and act in a way that would develop and mature his flock to maturity in Christ. That's the role. That's the role. It's not entertainment. It's not, um, it's not jokes. It's not self-gratification. The role of a pastor, the desire of a pastor, the strenuous contention of a pastor is that the people under his care, under his teaching, would develop maturity in Christ. Whether you started like Lydia or the slave girl or the jailer, the prayer and hope of a pastor is that you would grow in your walk with the Lord under his teaching. Students, that's the desire of Greg for you and Cody. That's their desire. Not that you would feel good, not that you would walk out feeling amazing and you're on top of the world, but that you would grow in your walk with Christ. That is the desire of a pastor. If you can sit in a church Sunday after Sunday and never develop in your walk with Christ, find a different church. The role of a pastor is to mature his flock. And so Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and depth of insight. So three words in here I want to look at. I want you to think about kind of braiding them as a rope together. This is what what discipleship and maturity looks like, this um, three-strand rope. First is love, that your love may abound. Love is unconditional active affection. This is is what love is. Love is here, and it's, it's active, but it's emotive. Like, there's, there's an emotion tied into it. It's, it's love. This is, for me, when I read this in context of Acts 16, I think this is what drew the slave girl to follow Jesus. It's, it's a love that she's never known before. It's the desire of Paul that the church in Philippi, that their unconditional active affection would abound more and more with knowledge. This word for knowledge is true knowledge or to know by experience. New Testament's written primarily in Greek. This word is epigenosis. So it's the idea of knowing by action or by experience. This is what knowledge is, true knowledge. Knowing true and false based on experience. So I know LeBron James, um, but I know Meredith, my wife. I don't know them the same. Does that make sense? To have knowledge of but then to have experience with are two completely different things. He says, I I desire that your love, your unconditional active affection, would grow by experiential knowledge. So I think this is where Lydia was. Lydia had this experiential knowledge of the Lord. It would grow with uh, knowledge and then depth of insight. Some of your translations might say discernment. The idea of depth of insight is discernment, moral sensitivity, or practical application, that that you would actually know, you would grow in such a way that your love would be founded in knowledge and then shows you how to behave in your workplace and at your school and with your spouse and with your kids and in your singleness, that that it would inform your activity, depth of insight. This is the jailer. I think he was compelled by this part of the gospel. Discernment, moral sensitivity, and practical application. All right, so I've got a diagram on the screen it's a Venn diagram because I feel like they work for everything. And so this is a Venn diagram. I think of what, I want to teach through what Paul is saying here. Three pieces, love, knowledge, and depth of insight. 
And you see in the middle where all three of them meet. This is where, this would be spiritual maturity is when your love abounds more and more with knowledge and depth of insight. But let's just look at the love part first. So love relationally, we can talk vertically with God and horizontally with people. Love, if it's just love, if you're, if you're following Jesus, your discipleship is only founded in this active, emotive kind of love. You are like a middle school boy who has a girlfriend. No offense. It's cute. It makes me want to throw up, but it's really cute. Right, so in a, it's, it's the idea of you're perfect in every way. I've never seen a more perfect specimen of a human than you. I mean, I love the way you chew your gum with your mouth wide open. It's the cutest thing to me. I love that you haven't showered in three weeks. I'd love that about you. I love that Fortnite is the most important thing to you. I just, I can't imagine. We should drop in together sometime. That'd be amazing. Right? It's a middle school, like, if, if your relationship with the Lord just stops there at, like, I can't believe you chose me. This is, it's, it's true. It's all true. But that, it's just this middle school romance. It's emotive. But the problem with a middle school emotive romance is that it's jealous and terribly insecure. Right? It just is. And then, but if you just have a relationship purely based on knowledge, you are, you're just a fan. It's informational, and you know the back of the playing card, but it's just, it's just informational. And if it's just depth of insight, you're pretty much roommates. Like, you know what to do and what not to do to cause certain reactions from people. So if your relationship with the Lord is just based on practical application, you don't have any foundation, you just know how to behave to get what you want from him and vice versa. So then where do these overlap? So where love and knowledge overlap, um, I think that's what stalkers are. Just bear with me. It's going to make sense. Um, So a stalker would say something like, um, I'm just saying, a a friend of mine told me this. I don't know for sure. (laughs) Would say something like, um, I love you, and I know what you love to have for dinner. Right? Like that's, it's a motive. You also have way too much knowledge. Like that's not, you shouldn't know those things. And like 10 years ago, you'd go to jail. Now you just go on Facebook and it's fine. Like it's the same thing, but just do it differently. But that's where it's, it's intrusive, right? It's, it's, you know enough to be dangerous. Where love and, and depth, of not, depth of insight overlap is really how my kids and I interact. Like they love me and they also know how to behave around me. Whether they do or don't is not up to me. It's up to them. But that's right. That's they know what to do. They know the buttons to push, and they know how to behave. If I come in a certain way, in a different way, that's what it looks like. If you have just knowledge and depth of insight, this is your stereotypical old married couple. You've lost the passion, but you're really good roommates. Like, you, you help pay the rent together. And the problem for us as followers of Jesus is to find what we'll call the fruit of righteousness. We'll, we'll read that later. To get the fruit of righteousness, all three have to be present. And I would imagine in a room this size with this many people, there are a lot of us who are stuck in one circle or just two and have never experienced the joy of following Jesus. Like you gave your life to Jesus at youth camp and then you burnt all of your new edition CDs. And that was great, but it never moved to you actually studying the word of God or knowing how he wants you to live in this world. And so here you are 30 years later, and you're a good Christian guy who goes to church and 
and doesn't cuss much around kids. <laughs> but, like, there's no joy for you. And Paul's desire for Philippi, that's my desire for us, that was Daryl's desire for us, that we would grow in our love, that we would grow in all knowledge and discernment, that we would grow, we'd have all three working together. And Paul says why, and he's going to give us why here in verse 10. This is why. So that, so that he wants you to have all three, he wants you to have love, knowledge, and depth of insight. Why? So that, in verse 10, you may be able to discern what is best. You might be able to. In having kids, my kids are still under the age of 10, and so I dream of the day when they go to college and, and spread their wings and fly. And, and that's, like, that's the pure desire of a parent is that I want to raise you to send you out. It's the pure desire of a pastor uh, that we would raise up Christians and then send them out to their workplace, that they would, they would you would be able to discern. It wouldn't be based on what I said or what Daryl said or Greg says or Cody says or what Zach says. It's based on, on what you know about God. He says that, that you might be able to discern what is best. This idea of discernment here comes from the, um, the way that they would test metal to find out if it's pure gold or fake or if it's impure in some way. It's to distinguish and approve that which is good or genuine. And so Paul's desire is that you would have a love that abounds more and more with all knowledge and discernment or depth of insight so that you can distinguish what is good or genuine, that you would know the genuine article. That when you go to college, you would know that this is what the Word of God says, and you would know it when you're sitting in your psychology classes. You wouldn't have to call somebody else. You would know, nope, that's not it. Because I know what's true. I know it. That we would distinguish and approve that which is good or genuine. It's the idea of holding it up to the sun. Like when you pay for something and you give the, the cashier a, a large bill, like 5 or $10 bill or 100 and they hold it to the light to see, or they pretend that they're doing something important. That's, that's what they're doing. We must be able to discern what is best and so be pure or blameless for the day of Christ. Again, this is sanctification. So the hope of Paul and our hope and my hope for you and my family and myself is that we would grow and every day we're becoming more and more like Jesus. Every day. This idea of pure and blameless is that you would, be, you would have integrity both personally and among other people. To be pure is to have personal integrity. To be blameless is that you have integrity among other people. The desire and the growth and sanctification of you as a Christian is that you would be presented before the Lord with integrity among yourself and that other people would say the same thing about you. That's what he's talking about. This is sanctification. Every day growing. And one way for us to decide and to um, like analyze our sanctification is what convicts you now compared to what convicted you when you first started following Jesus? Is that getting more narrow for you? Because it should be. If what, if what first convicted you when, you when you started following Jesus was, that, um, was the way that you talked and it was your mouth and your speech, my prayer would be over the next 10, 15, 20 years that God would zoom in on, no, no, it's not just what you say, it's what's in your heart to begin with. So for me, this happens in just ridiculous ways for me um, that I'm embarrassed to share, but I will. Um, I have this, like, spiritual conviction that I have to put the shopping cart back where it belongs when I'm done with it. Come on. Like, that's, it's a, honestly, it's a spiritual thing for me to do that. 
Buggy. You guys say buggy. That's why. That's like no one say anything. A buggy? A shopping buggy? I'm from Florida. I don't know. So literally for me, we get to the car, I unload the groceries, and the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And I don't, I don't want to have to put it back because it's raining. But God's like, no, you, now, now you've thought about it, so now you have to put it back. <laughs> like if you didn't think about it, you'd be fine, but you thought about it now. It's the same way if I'm in a store and there are clothes hanging off of the hanger on the ground. I'm like, oh, now i got to pick them up because I saw it. Like I've literally walked down other aisles and been like, oh, i got to turn around and go back. So the mark of following Jesus for a lot of us is, is that conviction narrowing for you? That's what he's talking about, that you be pure and blameless. Is that narrowing for you? Are you growing in that? And I love that Paul says that you might discern what is best. You might approve that which is good. I think as Christians in the church and our culture, we have a hard time approving things that are good. We're really good disproving things that are bad. But we have a hard time approving things that are good. So much so that the world knows exactly what Christians are against. I just wonder if they know what we're for anymore. The mark of a maturing Christian is not found in what they condemn, but in what they celebrate. The mark of a maturing Christian is not found in what you condemn. For some reason, we have this belief that as I grow in my walk with Christ, uh, it, the evidence is that I can tell you so many more things that are wrong with you. That's how you'll know I love Jesus. What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the culture? Darkness is dark. Sinners sin. I think as a maturing Christian, I wonder how good we are at being experts in the genuine article of God as opposed to the falsehood of the world. And I know everything that happened in New York this past week, and it makes me sick to my stomach. My question for you is, do you love adoption as much as you hate abortion? Because the mark of a maturing Christian is not found in what they condemn, but in what they celebrate. So Paul says, if you mature, you'd be able to discern what is best. On the flip side, let me say this to you. We also can't celebrate everything because then we're celebrating nothing. Because the other side of the coin in today's culture is, listen, God loves everyone. He's like a butterfly. He liked unicorns and gumdrops, and you should too. No. As a maturing believer, you begin to understand this is the genuine article of God, and you celebrate those things. And so we celebrate the sanctity of life, and we celebrate the sanctity of, of godly marriage, and we, we celebrate um, what it is to know the word of God, and we celebrate discipline. These are the things that we celebrate. What we celebrate should be an, an indication of who it is that we are worshiping. So Paul's desire for the church is that they would have a love for the Lord rooted in truth and discernment. Then verse 11. You'd be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What is the fruit of righteousness? As I study, I think it's joy. I think joy is the fruit of righteousness. So at the end of the day, discipleship is about leading you to true, lasting joy. The question for many of us as Christians this morning is, okay, you're following Jesus but are you living like it? Are you pursuing him? Are you developing and growing in your walk with him? That's the hope of Paul for them. 
And the emotional love isn't going to sustain you when things get hard. And in the room this morning, there's probably a lot of people whose emotional love didn't carry them through some kind of sickness in your family, somewhere where you thought God forsook you and and abandoned you. It probably hasn't carried you there, but you're a good Southern boy, and so you're here at church on a Sunday morning. Listen, it's that decision you made on the mountaintop as a seventh grader will never carry you forward unless you root it in knowledge and discernment. We've got to. And those of us who we grew up in church and we have so much knowledge in our mind, it will not sustain you in the day of trouble. And those of us who have been fed so much practical application that we know how to live our lives. But the truth is, if you are honest with who you are when no one's looking, you understand there's a conflict there. Because independently, these things will not sustain you. But together, they are the mark of a follower of Jesus. But I love verse 7 because this is the gospel. All of you share in God's grace with me. The only way we do any of this is through the grace of Jesus Christ. Because it's never been about your effort. It's been about the finished work of Jesus on the cross that has given us grace to move forward. So we need to have grace. Grace for each other and grace for ourselves. Grace of knowing and Your wife, she's not there yet, but she's progressing. And so are you. So am I, so is Daryl, so is Zach. Like, we're we're trying. We're not perfect, we're not there yet, but we're sharing in God's grace with you. This This is what grace does for us. I heard this illustration years ago, and I'm just gonna use it because I think it's so powerful for me. Because God has called us to progress. He's called us to sanctification and to grow and to develop as a follower of Jesus. The hard part for me, I know, is when I fall, I condemn myself and I just, I want to give up because I'm not good at it. And as I walk in my, further in my walk with Christ, I'm learning there's more and more things that I'm not good at, things that I failed him. Like they're not the big things anymore, but it's the little things where I just continue to fail the Lord in my heart and my attitude and in the way that I have affection for things I shouldn't. And you remember when your kids were starting to walk and, um, and as they started to walk, like their heads were just gigantic. Our kids' heads were gigantic and so they just fall forward and their feet just catch up. They're not walking. It's just literally how science works. And so that's what's happening. But as a parent, like you are, you cannot believe it's happening. Like they're walking and so you grab your phone and a camera and you grab all your friends and you put videos up that your kids are walking and you can't believe it's actually happening. And then your kid falls for the first time. And I guarantee you, none of you stood over your child and condemned that child for falling. Like you piece of trash, don't you know how to walk? You had two steps down. What's your problem? Walk better. You know what? Don't even try again. Let's just not walk. It's fine. It's fine. Just stay there. We don't. You know what we do? We cannot believe it's happening. Like, get up. Come on, get up, get up. And so we stand our kid up again, and they walk, and they fall, and they walk, and they fall, and they walk, and they fall. And I had this perception of Jesus that Jesus would just stand over me when I fell and say, are you, are you kidding again? You fell again, Jeremy? But the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is that when we begin to walk in sanctification, you will fall. And God's desire is progress over perfection, but nothing less than that. And as you fall, I believe the Lord is standing over us, gathering the Trinity around, taking pictures, sending out videos on social media. He's walking, he's doing it. And then we fall and the Lord says, get up, come on, do it again. And he grabs us under our arms and just stands us up and fixes our eyes on what's ahead of us. And he says, go again. Go again. 
And so this morning, I don't know if you're Lydia or if you're the slave girl or if you're the jailer, but here's what I know for all of us this morning. God is calling us to keep walking forward. And you will fall, but by the grace of Jesus, we will fall forward. That we would progress more and more into who God has called us to be. It's my prayer that our love would abound more and more in all knowledge and discernment. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads and pray with me? God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you that you meet us where we are and that you love us exactly how, you are, how we are, but you love us too much to leave us that way. And that there is a calling on our lives. There is a challenge for us of sanctification and growth and development. And that we cannot settle because you love us too much to let us. So God, even in the moments this morning as, as we are here, God, would you begin to convict us? Here's our hearts. Speak what is true. Where do we need to grow this morning? If it's knowledge, God, help us to study. Help us to find people to ask questions. If it's discernment, help us know how to put our knowledge into action. Keep us from running our mouths when we need to be moving. And God, I imagine there's a lot of us in the room this morning who, like the church in Revelation chapter 2, we need to return back to our first love. Would you draw us back and stir our affections for you? In Jesus' name, amen.